with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Reverend Russell McDougall, affectionately known as Father Russ. Father Russ is the rector of the Notre Dame University's Tantor Ecumenical Institute, which is a Jerusalem-based center of theological scholarship. Father Russ, hi. Hello, Ed. How are you? Great. It's really lovely to see you here today. I, I wanted to start with a, a kind of question about your your background. Like you've been in the church for a long time and you've played a lot of different roles, you've worn a lot of different hats. Within the sort of, um, let's say, religious language that exists in, in spiritual texts, there's a, there's a different set of vocabulary to what we might use day to day. So you know, you don't think of like manager and, and laborer so much as you think of shepherd or pilgrim. Mm -hmm. So within the religious language that's comfortable to you, have you felt like your life's path has had a predominant uh, mode for you? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, well, I've, as you said, I've done a number of different things. I've been involved in parish ministry in a Catholic parish in Nairobi, Kenya for a number of years. Um, I did my studies in scripture in Rome. Uh, I taught in a Catholic seminary in Uganda where I was also the, uh, the dean of the seminary and also the director of formation, meaning the, the, um, the one who's in charge of the seminary program for a specific community of students um, for my own Holy Cross community. We were a, a seminary that brought together students from four principal communities, four religious orders, and a number of, of uh, smaller groups as well who sent students to us. But each community had its own house for its own students. We came together for courses and for teaching, so we were able to share faculty at the institution. Um, so I've, I've had to be a, a manager of sorts in the formation community, in the seminary, where I was also the, the dean of the seminary. Um, but I think ultimately what, what I've tried to be in, in each of the, the ministries that I've been privileged to be part of over the years is, is a, a shepherd, somebody who helps um, uh, 
lead the community in a good way, um, to lead them on a, a path toward wholeness. So it was, whether in the parish or in the seminary, it wasn't just intellectual formation, but also um, offering moral guidance and moral formation as well to help lead people closer to to God, help people to discover the, um, the kind of relationship that they have with, with God and to nurture that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, really. But, Perfectly. Uh, um, Perfectly. I, I think that's what I've tried to be all along, wearing the different hats that I've worn. So in these, with these different hats, you've had like very different functional roles day to day, but this, uh, this shepherd sense... Has, has pervaded through those different roles? I believe so. At least that, I think that's what I've tried to do. So with if you sort of feel that shepherdness of you and then coming to Tantor, what is it, ascending into the Tantor, as they say, what was that step like for you? Well, it was part of the larger picture. Um, and a shepherd leads in different ways. Sometimes... Uh, a shepherd um, stands in front of the flock, leading them forward. Other times, in the in the midst, and other times, pushing from from behind. Um, and in a sense, I I've tried to lead in the same way here. Um, sometimes by stepping ahead. Other times by pushing from, from behind. Professor Albert Altler in 1972 here at Tantor said, no one climbs up to Tantor except to follow a vocation, the same vocation that led on the pioneers of ecumenism. That is the climate in which the research here must develop. Is that a quote that resonates with you at this point as rector of Tantor? It does, I think, because... I think what he's referring to is that the ecumenism or the ecumenical spirit is a kind of uh, bug that that people get, a kind of infection. A, a, a colleague here in Jerusalem, Father Franz Bowen, who's been deeply involved in ecumenism, both here in Jerusalem and worldwide for many, many years, speaks about ecumenism in that way. And I think it is a kind of bug that you get that you can't get rid of. Um, that in a sense, when you, when you experience the, the beauty of, of a tradition that's different from your own, In a way, there's there's no going back to um, a kind of state of naivete or, or ignorance of of the other. Um, when you, it's a realization that that we have something 
to learn from, from the other, um, something to gain by, by absorbing what we see as beautiful or as good or an expression of truth in, in a tradition other than our own, that um, you know, once we've experienced that, we're not able anymore to simply rest secure in our own traditions, thinking that you know we we're self-sufficient and um, sort of have all of the truth on our own side. So um, you know, for me, that that happened in visiting, being invited to other services of Christian worship and, and discovering that there was a lot that we had in common, there, uh, as well as things that were different that, that I appreciated and thought were, were really beautiful, uh, different musical traditions, different... Um, traditions of hiddenity. And then that, that kind of um, bug, or <laughs> if you want to use the, the, the imagery of infection, uh, deepened in interfaith encounters too, in you know, attending um, weddings or, or funerals or our mitzvahs of, of friends of, of mine, family so, friends. So Tantra was originally established here uh, in south, south of Jerusalem as a center primarily for um, work between different denominations of Christianity, is that correct? Yeah, originally, the, 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 and still, the, the principal mission that Tantur has been given by the Pope by successive popes, is to be a place where Christians of all the different churches can come together for study, for encounter with one another, um, to, to look at some of the difficult issues and questions that continue to be sources of division between us. You've pointed previously to the Eucharist as a really strong example of this. Yes, I mean that. That's usually the 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 clearest flashpoint. Could you explain the, that that whole the Eucharist situation for those who aren't familiar with this dispute? Well, the Eucharist is is considered the central act of worship in the Christian tradition, in which we join. You know the the gift of our own lives to God's gift of himself to us. Um, and it's, uh, it's considered then, you know, the, the, that act of being at table together with one another and with God um, is considered the, the central act of Christian Worship, and we normally don't um, share the meal together with others that we're not in communion with. That's the phrase that's usually used, meaning um, 
we share a, a deep sense of a common faith together. Um, and so, because of the different divisions that have split the church over the centuries, so that today we have Oriental Orthodox churches like the the Coptic Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, um, who drifted away from communion with the the churches, say, of the the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, what what eventually became the, the Catholic Church in the West, the the churches of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Eastern Orthodox churches, um, the Oriental Orthodox churches, um, because of these these divisions, you no longer feel like you're in communion with them in the sense of belonging to the same church, and therefore taking meals with them is correct in the Eucharist of the yeah. problem. So is the, the issue that the rituals themselves are different, or that people don't want to do the same ritual together? The issue isn't so much that the rituals are different. The rituals are different. They've developed in different ways in different regions, although they they tend to have the same general structure of beginning with um, a part of the service that's focused on the sharing of the scriptures together, and then the sharing of the Eucharist, the bread and wine of the the Eucharist. The so, in a Catholic service, that's the giving of the wafer and wine to the congregation? Yeah, yeah. The giving of the, the bread and the wine that Christians believe is in, although they have different understandings of what it means, but that it is the body and blood of Christ. Um, and different churches fell out of communion with other churches at different points along the way. The Oriental Orthodox in the fifth century, the the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches um, excommunicated each other in the eleventh century, and then the the churches that emerged at the time of the Reformation are, fell out of communion with the the, the Roman Catholic Church. This so. is Martin Luther's famous. Protestant schism. Yeah, which so, the which we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of you know, this year. Celebrating so, so is a strong word. Well, observe. Lutheran friends have made a point of saying that they are um, commemorating the anniversary, not celebrating it, because it, one shouldn't celebrate division. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I use it in the more general sense that we, we celebrate anniversaries. And while certainly the, the kind of divisions and animosity that led to, among other things, the Thirty Years' War in Europe and a lot of prejudice and mutual recriminations and hatred, we don't want to celebrate that. On the other hand, there are... Um, areas of aspects of Western culture that um, 
wouldn't be as they are without the, the Reformation, the kind of critical spirit that emerged in the Enlightenment is something that uh, had its foundations in the in the, the questioning spirit that emerged in the, the Reformation. So I, there are there are aspects of it that are worth celebrating. I don't think we should be too afraid of using the word. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it's interesting to hear these, this history of different church splits and mutual excommunication. Mm-hmm. Things seem so different now, and it seems like a big part of that transformation happened under Paul VI with Pope Paul VI with Vatican II. Could you explain for people who don't understand the historical impact of that, why Vatican II was so important? Well, Pope John XXIII was the one who called the the Vatican Council in order, as he put it, to, to open the windows a bit, to allow the church to take in some of the positive things that have come out of the modern world. Because for, for a number of centuries previous to that, the Catholic Church had set its face against modernity and the, the, the sort of critical uh, spirit that emerged both during the Reformation and then more particularly during the Enlightenment because the, the leadership of the church saw it as a, as a threat to the, the faith of simple people. Um, so John Twenty-Third wanted to open the church to what was good in the modern age, but it was really... Paul VI, who shepherded the council deliberations to their conclusions. Um, what what were those conclusions practically being? What were the biggest impacts that they had in the world? Well, for Catholics, the biggest immediate effect was the the, the changes that came fairly quickly in the liturgy, um, in in allowing the. The, the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church to be celebrated in the vernacular, which is something the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Eastern Catholic churches had done all along. For the, for the rest of the Catholic world, it was mainly in Latin? It was mainly, yeah. It was entirely in Latin? It was entirely in Latin. Um, except for some small parts for people to understand, particularly the the sermon um, would have been in the local language. But it was considered an advantage that wherever people went in the world, they, they would know what was happening in the liturgy because it was in Latin a... Latin was common, a universal, common yeah. sacramental language. So that was the idea, although you know, even, in, even with the use of the vernacular, the, the liturgy, the structure of the liturgy is the same in the different countries where Roman Catholics worship. Um, So people still know what's going on, and if they have uh, uh, access to the internet or a prayer book, they can have the the liturgy and the readings in their own language so so as to be able to follow 
wherever they are. So, so it's, one of the big, most immediate changes within the church, so for the for the congregants, was their the ability to now perform the liturgy in their local vernacular. What was what were the main um, visible differences to people who weren't in the church? The the biggest difference for those the biggest differences for those who were outside the church, I think, was. Uh, a greater spirit of openness to dialogue. And that was something that Paul VI did not only in the council itself, but in discussions that he had with religious leaders, um, Orthodox church leaders, Protestant church leaders, both in Rome at the time of the council, but also elsewhere, um, was a desire to try to to heal some of the divisions in the church and to, to enter into serious dialogue with one another, to look at the, the historical causes of the different splits and divisions and to see what could be done to try to, to overcome those. And, and what were the changes to the church's attitude to those completely not Christian? Well, the biggest um, changes reflected in the, the document Nostra Aetate that was approved by the, the council fathers. Um, it, it's five short sections, paragraphs really, that uh, speak about the church's relationship first to uh, religions of the East, so it specifically mentions Hinduism and Buddhism, um, and says that the church rejects nothing that's, that's good in these traditions. Um, in the paragraph on Islam, it recognizes that, that like Christians and Jews, Muslims worship one God. Um, and, and have a respect for uh, the, the people of the book. So it, it recognizes that we do have much in common with Muslims, even though um, from the Christian point of view, they're a tradition that comes after and to some extent um, claims to be better. <laughs> so, so we Christians have this, some of the same difficulties in dealing with Muslims that, that, that Jews might have in dealing with Christians also. That, uh, but those were improved yeah. significantly by Nostra, Nostra right. Party. Right. And, and, then, and then the final um, the, paragraph. The, the big question is, of course, is it good for the Jews? Nostra Party? Yeah. I believe so. I mean, it, it formally repudiated the, the belief that, that had been expressed by many Christians over the ages that, that Jews were collectively responsible for the death of Jesus. Um, and it repudiated that. So my understanding of, of this phenomenon, this, this is, was incredible to me when I found out about this, mm -hmm. was that until, was it 1962? When the council started, yeah. yes. Yeah. So until then, um, church doctrine was that Jews were both collectively and individually guilty of deicide by virtue of, of the killing of Jesus. 
I don't know that it was official doctrine. I don't that might be putting it a little bit strongly, but it certainly was a common uh, conception among most Christians, and, then, and certainly you know in in individual encounters that people had, or um, Jews could would, did could be referred to and were referred to as Christ killers. So this is this is something that was very, very emotionally, uh, sort of bizarre for me because, like, when I found out that until nineteen sixty-two, that was the case, and then we that the church officially repudiated the global charge of deicide. There was something in me that was sort of, uh, like, obviously relieved, but also like a bit disappointed. Like there was a sense of being taken seriously when you're accused of deicide. <laughs> But, but it was, I suppose, a small price to pay. And so that was, that was a real shift in things. And then just a few years ago, uh, the Vatican published a new document, mm-hmm. The Gift and Calling of God at Irrevocable, where they take the ideas in Nostra Aetate and extend them to the extent that, uh, if I have it right, I think uh, Christians are no longer, Catholics are no longer called, called upon to um, witness to Jews. And Jews are uh, acknowledged to have a place in heaven, despite not accepting Christ, despite the fact that we believe that the only way to heaven is through Christ. I might have that a little wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got the, some of the remarkable things the document says. Uh, you've gotten the gist of it. From my perspective, it, it does a couple things that are really notable for a Vatican document. One is that it takes the long tradition of or the, the, the thread that you can trace through from the church fathers um, into more contemporary theologians that, um, that would see the covenant, God's covenant with the Jewish people as having been superseded by the covenant that God offers through Christ. So supersessionism. It takes that sort of supersessionist thread in Catholic, not just Catholic, but Christian theology and says that it's wrong because of what Paul says about the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, that God hasn't abandoned his people, God hasn't abrogated the covenant that God gave to the Jewish people. Um, So that's pretty remarkable to take what had been a fairly um, prominent thread in Christian theology and that goes back to the church fathers, the, the same period as the, um, the formation of the, the Mishnah and the Talmud, and says that that, that line of thinking is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one remarkable thing, because Vatican documents usually, the church leaders prefer to begin official teaching by saying, as the church has always taught. Mm-hmm. So to to single out a particular line and say, as the church has always taught, is in this particular instance wrong. 
um, is, is pretty amazing. The other thing that, that it does is ask for theological reflection on the issue that you alluded to. Um, because the church still professes, Christians still profess that we believe that you know, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has significance for all of humanity. Um, that it's a decisive turning point in, in human history. And that affirmation hasn't changed. So the question then is, how do you affirm these two things at the same time? On the one hand, that God hasn't abrogated his covenant with the Jewish people, and yet the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has universal significance, whether people believe in, in him or not. How do you um, affirm those two things at once? Well, I don't know that I have the answer to that yet, and that's what the document asks for, is uh, how, can we, how can we affirm both those things? And it, that's the other way in which it's remarkable, because it, it's asking a question, an open question, that it doesn't know the answer to yet. Is it, is it, is it crying out for an answer, or is it asserting a certain, um, a certain unanswerableness about the question? I'd say the former, for now. We don't know that it's unanswerable until we, we think more deeply about the question. But that's what the, the document calls for, is theological reflection on that question. After How can we affirm both of those things? Because that's what the, the, the Catholic Church would like to do, to in, insist, as Paul does in the letter to the Romans, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So God still has a purpose in mind, uh, a vocation for the Jewish people. But at the same time, Christians do believe that that, that vocation, that, that um, our being in the world is, um, and our call is exemplified in some way most deeply by the life of, of Jesus. So it's how to hold both of those things together that uh, needs further, further reflection and study about it. And on the practical side of things, uh, I really don't have understandings of how these things trickle down or, or move through the system. In your understanding, did the publication of this document uh, lead to significant reduction or the end of proselytizing to Jews? Well, from uh, there hasn't been such immediate fallout yet or immediate effect of the document that was just published in just two years ago, basically, December of 2015. There has been a, a large change in the church in the period since the publication of Nostra Aetate. Um, there have been further reflections and, and statements issued about uh, how the... Um, in seminary formation, the, the way priests are formed needs to take into account the, this new perspective on 
Jews and Judaism um, so that we're not just continuing to preach while making use of old stereotypes. And I would say that that has happened in some places better than others. I think in, in places where Christians live with Jews, live close to Jews, the um, relations are much warmer. There are a lot of um, contacts between congregations and so on. Where, where people, in areas of the world where people may never have met a Jew, I still find at times, at least my experience working in Africa, was that I, I heard plenty of homilies by local clergy where, where Jews were still sort of the paper tiger that was constructed in order to, you know, pull down, <laughs> you know, the, the, taking the, the kind of examples of the, the tensions um, and conflict with the Pharisees in the New Testament as if that's an accurate uh, portrayal of what Jews today are like. Um, so there's still work to be done. I, I would certainly admit that. Uh, but in places where, where Jews and Christians live together, I think there's been an enormous change. What do you see as the end game for this sort of work? For which sort of work? Ecumenical or interfaith? Uh, both, but primarily interfaith first. Mm. By end game, what do you mean? What, what do you like? let's, say, let's say that your work here is successful to the, to beyond your wildest dreams, and then it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs, and we reach the place where, in your heart, it feels like the best place to reach. What is that place like? Okay, well, I, for me, the end game or the, or the goal in all of this isn't to achieve a kind of single community where, as a result of our study and conversation and dialogue and encounter with one another, we... We, kind, we achieve a, some kind of common denominator where we, we become one community of faith. I think the goal really is to be able to learn from one another in our diversity, um, whether I'm talking about the, the diversity of Christian communities um, or the diversity of Jewish communities too, the diversity of Muslim communities. Uh, to, for me, the result of the study, reflection, encounter, dialogue of, of, of going to visit each other's places of worship and, and seeing how a community, a, a real believing community, worships um, joyfully. That in doing that, we we can we can see how begin to see how God is at work in in the lives of people who are different from us, um, and not just in people who are the same as us. And th- th- this is where I think Jerusalem, or how I think Jerusalem, 
is a wonderful place to be because it, it's an incredibly diverse place. Um, in this community of just under a million people, you have a rich diversity of Christian communities, a rich diversity of Jewish communities, and of Muslim communities as well. So for me, the end game is really the ability to be able to perceive the presence of God um, in each other in the midst of that diversity, not, not in spite of, of that diversity. You've spoken before about the ideal of being Christ-like as something that's central to your faith. Could you explain what that means and give some examples? Hmm. It's a good question. It's not, it's not a particularly easy question. In, in some ways, I think it, it, it picks up on what, what we were just talking about in, in being able to perceive the, the presence of God, or if you will, the face of God in each other. Because um, I think ultimately that's what, um, what the importance of the figure of of Jesus, of, of Christ in Christian faith is, is about. Um, I mean, the, the whole doctrine of the Trinity is something that um, befuddles, I think, um, Jews and Muslims who also confess the unity of, of God. And it's it's not always something that's easy for Christians to explain either, but I think the um, the ultimate uh, concern of the uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity in Christian faith is really soteriological, meaning it has to do with um, how God saves us um, and. For, for Christians, the way God saves us is by reaching out to us uh, through his spirit, which we've encountered in the word of the prophets and so on, um, and through the, the presence of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the, um, whom Christians confess as the Messiah. The, the Christ and Paul speaks um, in the letter to the Romans and elsewhere of, of the way that through our baptism Christians are incorporated into Christ or as Luther whose uh, anniversary of the starting of the Reformation we commemorate in these days, would say we're meant to become little Christs for one another. So that um, basically through baptism and through ongoing transformation by the, the Holy Spirit, each Christian is supposed to become 
another Christ, or, or maybe another way of put, thinking of it is, is becoming sons with a small s, in the sun with a big s, um, sort of stepping into Jesus's relationship with God, with, with the Father. So um, in, this, in this understanding of things, when Jesus is living out his life in the Gospels, what he's doing is establishing a, a pattern of motive and behavior that you can adopt in your life. Is that, is that roughly what's, what you're saying here? Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, not few Christians would, would claim to be the kind of miracle workers that, that Jesus was. But the kind of presence that we're invited to have with others, um, uh, a presence that leads to healing and reconciliation, is meant to be Christ-like. But but in a sense, more than just like Christ, but that we really are called to to be Christ, to, to become Christ. What sort of is there? Is there a particular story from the Bible that that underlines what it is to behave like Christ for you? Hmm. Yes, I, I think probably the the stories of the martyrs, in a way, would be the the clearest example, or at least it's the one that comes to mind. Um, First of all, the, the stories of, of some of the disciples, like, like Stephen, who was stoned, and whose own martyrdom is, is described in terms that are similar in some ways to Jesus' own death. But to martyrs through the ages, too, right up to the present, I think of Maximilian Kolb, the, the Franciscan priest who died at Auschwitz after offering to, to take the place of a man who had been condemned to, to death uh, but had a, a family. And even if it, he wasn't killed specifically for his faith in Christ. He was killed because he, he, he offered his own life you know, in, in place of someone else's um, as, a, as a gift to, to God. So in a sense then, the question that's, that's being asked here is, what are you willing to die for? Yeah, but also, what are, how, how are we invited to live I mean um, that's probably the most important thing is what kind of a life we live day to day but then uh, if if something more is demanded of us by circumstances something that leads even to death not to run from that because Well, because we see that there is a, a life in the world to come that means we don't have to cling necessarily to, to life in, in this world.
what would you say is something about the character of Jesus that modern people with like a, a, a just a vague per- perception of the Jesus of the Bible would be surprised by? Hmm. Surprised by is a, an interesting way of putting it. Uh, I mean, I think the the way it, Jesus has certainly been interpreted by different people in different ways over the, the centuries and um, more recently as a result of you know the, the kind of critical spirit of the Enlightenment people tended to, to downplay the miraculous and, and portray Jesus as the man for others which doesn't seem so surprising to us, really. That, that's a Jesus we can understand, but the Jesus who sort of turns lives around and works miracles of healing, that probably is the, um, the Jesus that might surprise people more today. Um, because we tend not to believe in miracles. <laughs> right. At when did you grow up Believing in miracles? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think most Christians do. Um, and, and for some, reaching adulthood can then be kind of a, an experience like, you know, uh, discovering that Santa Claus isn't quite what you <laughs> thought. <laughs> When you were when you were four or five, um, and I, I think it is a little bit hard to. Um, it, it it's harder as an adult perhaps to read the stories of miracles of healing in in the same way, um, even though. There, there are plenty of Christians who do believe in the literalness of the miracles and and see the same kind of miracles happening today. I just haven't seen such things for myself. So what's the other option to believing in the literalness of the miracles? Well, just to see that what they're trying to, what the, what the stories are trying to convey is the the healing presence of, of Christ in, in whatever way people experience that, whether it was at times through physical healing, other times through restoration to fellowship with the community when people have been uh, made to be outsiders in some way. Father Ross, mm-hmm. what's your vision of a better Jerusalem? Well, in some ways, I think it's it's what I spoke about before. You know, Jerusalem is full of people for whom faith and belief in God, walking with God, is important. Um, and so it's it's surprising that in this city where there's so much faith also to see 
so much tension and so much hatred. Um, so for me, a better Jerusalem would be to, for each of us to really look at the resources of our own tradition more deeply, um, to, to be able to see the face of God in, in, in one another and to experience that. I mean, I think for Christians, that's, you know, that, that's the, the invitation that we're given to find Christ in and through the other person um, and so to experience God, really, that that's how we, we touch God is by um, touching the one who's close to us. Father Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's been good talking to you. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.